Turn with me to John 17. John 17. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11 this evening. John 17, verses 6 through 11. And considering true unity. True unity. Give attention to God's holy word. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the ordinance of preaching. We ask that you would bless it now for the edification of the church and the manifestation of your presence in our midst. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, perhaps some of you have heard of the movement known as the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement is a movement coming out of the early 20th century, but there are still uh, hints of it today. It's a movement that tried to bring together all of the churches, Protestant, Anglican, Catholic, Methodist, Lutheran, all of them, tried to bring together all of the churches into one unified body. Some of the results of this movement back in the 20th century was the World Council of Churches. This is an ecumenical body trying to bring about unity among the churches. Now, the unity that they were seeking was a visible unity. They wanted that all of the churches would be under one organization to preserve visible unity. This passage that we've just read is one of the passages that was used as a justification for this. They would say that Christ prayed that we would be one, and so it's our job to seek to be one, to be unified together as one church on earth. Some of you that know a little bit of history may know that this is what the Roman Catholics argue. The Roman Catholics will say that there is only one church in the earth, And that is the Catholic Church. And if you're not part of the Catholic Church, you're not a part of the true church. Well, what all of these things have in common is that they are seeking unity. They're seeking the unity of the church, but it is a false unity. The unity of the church is a very unique thing. And we're going to learn in this passage 
what true unity is in the church. We need to keep in mind that in the church, or I should say in God's plan of redemption, there is only one church. There is only one body that Christ saves. This has been confessed by the church in all ages. You remember the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is a confession of that one church that we find in the Scriptures and the one church that God will save. There is only ever one church of God. However, that church has two aspects. There is one way that men see the church, and there is the way that God sees the church. The way that men see the church we call the visible church. The way that God looks at the church we call the invisible church. In this passage, our Lord is praying for the unity of the invisible church. Now remember, there are not two churches. There's not an invisible church and a visible church. It is one and the same church looked at from two perspectives, how God sees her and how man sees her. What Christ is praying for here is the unity of the invisible church. Now we need to keep the order in mind here. It is the unity of the invisible church that secures the true unity of the visible church. Let me say that again. It is the unity of the invisible church that secures the unity of the visible church. And what we're going to learn specifically in this passage is that the unity of the church is based upon the name of the Father and the mediation of the Son. The unity of the church is based upon the name of the Father and the mediation of the Son. There's two things in this passage. Unity in the Father and unity in the Son. Verses 6 through 9, pardon me, 6 through 8, give us the unity in the Father And verses 9 through 11, unity in the Son. 6 through 8 is unity in the Father. 9 through 11, unity in the Son. And so we begin, verses 6 through 8, unity in the Father. Notice that Christ, as he's continuing his prayer in John 17... Verse 6, he begins and says, uh, uh, he continues, says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. The name is a very important idea in the scriptures. The name of God identifies who he is and what he is like. uh, The revelation of the name, that's the word that's... uh, uh, the name is what Christ is, is manifesting to the disciples. 
If you look back through scripture and redemptive history, the revelation of God's name is a key element in redemption. Redemption is not merely God doing a mighty work to save his people. It is that. But in addition to that, God also reveals himself in the act of redemption. Just two examples to consider, both in the book of Exodus. You remember that when Moses begins his ministry of leading the people out of Egypt, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, God calls Moses and Moses says, who am I going to tell them who you are? What if they ask me, what is your name? And then God reveals his name. Tell them, I am what I am. Tell them, Jehovah has sent you. So with the mighty act of redemption, God reveals his name. Now it's important, the name that he reveals at that time. Remember who Israel was, they were enslaved. Remember who Pharaoh was, he was the mightiest king in all the world. Remember that the Israelites are being oppressed, they've been told to kill their children, and that Pharaoh with all his mighty army is mightier than the Hebrew slaves. Well, who can deliver them? The one who's mightier than Pharaoh. The great I am, who is not subject to to anything. So deliverance from Egypt, the I am comes to deliver them. Turn now to the second example in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Chapter 34, in chapter 34, the context now is that Israel is out of Egypt. They've already been delivered from Egypt, but they still have a major problem. They are still in their sins. Right before this episode, Israel had created a golden calf when Moses was absent on the mountain. They made this golden calf and began worshiping it as if it was God himself. God is angry with the people and he says that I'm going to wipe them out and start over with Moses. Moses intercedes and says, no, don't do that. Wipe me out and not them. And then the Lord, in pardoning their sin, an act of redemption... He pardons their sin, and in chapter 34, he reveals more of his name. Who is this God that can forgive the sins of his people who just broke the covenant? They were in covenant for maybe 30 minutes, and then they broke the covenant by making the golden calf. So who is this God, and what is he like? Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And then as you go through Old Testament history, at each stage of God's work, he reveals something more about who he is in his name. At the beginning, he's the great I am, subject to no one. Here, it's still the great I am who is merciful and long-suffering to the transgressions of his people. Well, in Christ, returning to John 17 now, Christ says... I have manifested your name to the people you have given to me. And it is in Christ 
that God is now finally and fully revealed as Father. It is in the work of Christ that God's fatherhood is finally and fully revealed. Uh, And I should say, revealed as Father through the Son. You remember that Christ's teaching in 14 through 16 is all about this theme, the mystery of the gospel. Just one instance, verse 10 of chapter 14. Philip asks this question, and Christ says, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Not just Jehovah, not just Jehovah long-suffering and merciful, but the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? And then several other examples throughout this teaching passage. So it is in Christ that God is finally and fully revealed to us as Father. Now why is this important? Israel needed to know it was the great I Am who was coming to save them because they couldn't save themselves. They didn't have the power to do it. Moses needed to hear that Jehovah is merciful and long-suffering because Israel had sinned grievously. We need to hear that God is Father so that we can enjoy the adoption as sons. The benefit that comes from this name is being adopted into the family of God. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12, speaks about adoption. And I just want to commend to you Westminster one more time if I haven't enough already. The Westminster Confession is the only Protestant, maybe even Christian confession that I know of that has a chapter on adoption. Nobody else speaks about adoption the way that the Westminster does. Listen to what they say about the grace of adoption. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. What happens when we're adopted? By which we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. We have his name put upon us, we receive the spirit of adoption have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed up to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What does this mean? Well, this means that just as God said at the baptism of Christ, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, all those that God adopts, he says, my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. My beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of his grace in adopting us and adding us to the number. You ever notice if you talk to a a father, and uh, sometimes when you're meeting somebody for the first time, you say, you have any kids? Yeah, I've got kids. How many? He starts listing off the number. 
God the Father has an innumerable amount of children. That's what it means to be added to the number. You're a feather in his hat. You're one of his that he counts. And so God being revealed to us as Father means part of his redemption is adopting us into his family. Well, not only does Christ do that, remember that our unity is based on the name of the Father. Not only is that uh, what Christ reveals, there's also the Word. Look at what he says. Verse 6. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your Word. Notice the very close connection between the name and the Word. I have manifested your name to those whom you've given me. They were yours, and they have received your Word. The Word just like the name. It's a revelation of who God is, what he is like, and what his will is. What is his purpose for our salvation? Notice also what he says in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Christ is referring to the doctrine of election. It is only the elect that receive the word of Christ in this way. It is only those who belonged to the Father first and were then given to Christ that in time receive the word that Christ brings to them. This is the second thing that's revealed to us about God as Father. Not only are we adopted into his family, but we are also taught that he is the author of all things that come to pass. He is the ruler of all things, and it is through the Father's grace of election that we are in Christ. Notice carefully the order. The order is that the Father elects and the Son saves. The Father elects and the Son saves calls. This is what Paul is speaking about in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, turn there with me. Glorious passage about the work of the Father in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. It's very interesting, isn't it? The book of Ephesians is all about the church as we just read in 3 and 4. And as Paul speaks about the church, he starts with the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Skipping down to verse uh, 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice the order. The Father elects, and the Father elects us in the Son, 
The gospel comes and calls us, and we believe in the Son. And so it is through election that we receive the word of the Father. For a more theological definition of the church, we mentioned earlier that the church has two aspects. One is how men look at the church. The other is how God sees the church. Well, our confession does talk about the visible and invisible church in chapter 25, and listen to how our confession describes the invisible church. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So as Christ is speaking here about the elect who receive the word of God, he's speaking about the invisible church, those that will infallibly come to salvation because of the Father's prior work. Notice finally in the unity of the Father, um, Christ continues in verse 7, he says, Now they have known, because they are elected, because they've, they've kept the word of the Father, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Notice finally that those who are adopted into the Father's family, those who are the elect that receive the word of God from Christ, are focused on Christ. You see how their faith is focused on statements about Jesus, not about the Father directly, but about Christ. He says, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Think about it this way. The disciples see and hear Christ in his ministry, and they're drawn to him And then saving faith says, this man must be from God. The things that he's doing, only a man from God can do. Further in verse 8, I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known not only that I am, the, the words are divine, but I myself am divine. Look at what he says. They have known that I came forth from you. That I am your unique son and that you have sent me. We can summarize the unity in the Father this way. The elect who are adopted embrace the name of the Father as it is presented in Christ. And in Christ they see the unique son of the Father. That's what Christ is teaching. So how do we apply this, at least at this stage, unity in the Father? First, the way you see yourself. You are adopted. You're not cast out. Christ said earlier in this passage, I will not leave you orphans. You know what defines an orphan? Someone who has not yet been adopted. But you are no longer orphans. You have been adopted by the Father. And what that means for us is that when we cry out to him, when we seek to obey him, when we fail, when we sin, 
when we fail to seek him, that doesn't change your status as one of his children. Just like with your children, when they sin, when they fail to speak to you when you ask them how their day was, when they don't do the things that are pleasing in your sight, they don't cease to be your children. They are always your children. Likewise, those who have received Christ and have been adopted, the elect that the Father chose from before the foundation of the world, are always God's children because he has adopted you in Christ. That's how God sees you. That's how you need to see yourself as an adopted son of God. Now, one of the ways that we exercise our adoption, remember the confession talks about the liberties and privileges of the children of God. One of the ways we exercise this privilege is by praying. Paul says we've been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, enjoying the gospel comes as you walk in the gospel. Enjoying the gospel and the privileges of it will come and grow as you walk in the duties and privileges of the gospel. You want to enjoy your adoption? Talk to your father. He's waiting. Secondly, how do we see each other? Notice that Christ says this is a, it's a multitude of people. It's not just one person, but it is a multitude of individuals who have received his word. We are to see one another as brothers and sisters. We are to see one another as members of the same family, members of the same household. And that's how we are to see the church, as the family of God. Turn back to Ephesians 3. This is why I read this passage earlier in the prayer time. Because Paul takes all of these ideas and and puts them together beautifully in his prayer for the church. He starts in verse 14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, it's, it's very interesting. John Owen speaks about the persons of the Trinity and how they relate to us. And he'll say that the Holy Spirit relates to us by fellowshipping with us. The Holy Spirit is near to us. He'll say that Christ relates to us by his grace. Christ is the one that receives favor and he gives us favor. So how does the Father relate to us? The Father relates to us by love. That's what Paul is praying for. And then he goes into chapter 4 and notice when he, he calls for the unity of the visible church, it's based on the unity of the invisible church. Look at what he says. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, 
with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? There is one body and one Spirit. There's one church. There's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The unity of the visible church of Ephesus was based on the unity of this invisible church. And so the unity of church is uh, the unity of the church is in the Father, but it is also in the Son. And that's what we now turn to in the rest of our passage. The unity of the Son, verses 9 through 11. First off, Christ has spoken about the unity of the Father, and then in verse 9, he prays. He says, I pray for them. Who does he pray for? He prays for the elect. He prays for those that receive the word of God. He prays for those that receive the name of God. He prays for those that believe in Christ. He prays for the children of the Father. He prays for his brothers and sisters. I pray for them. What we're going to learn about unity in the Son is that it's based in the name of the Father and it's maintained by the work of the Son. That is what guarantees the unity of the church. The first work that Christ does is prayer. Notice what he says, I pray for them, the elect. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Recall, earlier in this section, uh, specifically verse, uh, chapter 15, chapter, uh, sorry, 16, that in this section and most of the New Testament, the world refers to those that walk by the flesh, not by the Spirit. Remember what Christ is dealing with here. He's dealing with the invisible church. He's not dealing with the visible church. We often make a mistake in our minds when we think about the church and the world, and we think it means those inside the walls and those outside the walls. That's not the distinction. The distinction between the church and the world is those who have the spirit of adoption and those who walk by the flesh, whether inside or outside the walls. Ordinarily, those who are inside the walls are, uh, I'm sorry, I should say, ordinarily those who walk by the spirit make their way into the walls. But also, from time to time, those who are inside the walls walk by the flesh. And so Christ says, I do not pray for the world, those who walk according to the flesh. I pray for the elect, those who will walk according to the Spirit. Romans 8 gives us a greater illustration of this idea. If you look at Romans 8, verse 9, Paul the Apostle speaks in this manner. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. No matter how much we profess outwardly, if we don't have the Spirit of Christ, we don't belong to Christ. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That is, if you live according to human power, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. As many as are led by the Holy Spirit are the adopted ones of God. They are the elect. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And so Christ says, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for the ones whom you have given me. This prayer of Christ in maintaining the unity of the church is his chief work right now. This is the primary thing that Christ is doing on behalf of his church. Same chapter, Romans 8, look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So the apostle describes what Christ is doing at the right hand of God. He's praying for all his elect. And it's on the basis of these prayers that Paul will say later on in this chapter, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the unity of the church. Why? Because you're able? No. Because Christ is praying for you. Isn't that what he told Peter? Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The unity of the church and your maintenance in the church as one of God's people is not based on your power or ability. It's based on the name of the Son, and it's maintained by the prayers of the Son, whom Christ said in the Gospels, the Father always answers his prayers. It's maintained by the work of the Son, primarily in his prayer, and it is also marked by his exaltation. Look at what he says in verse uh, 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This refers to the exaltation of the Son. The way to understand verse 10, I think, is that this is a description of those who belong to the Father and are uh, preserved by the Son. Let me say it this way. Christ is not laying down a law that you need to fulfill to be a part of the church. He is not saying, you need to glorify Christ and then you'll be a part of the church. What he's saying is that the elect who repent and believe, they glorify me. They are marked by likeness to Christ. They reflect my glory. This is what they are like in the world. These are the ones that Christ is praying for. And these are the ones that will maintain the unity. 
Notice finally in verse 11, as Christ is praying for them, what does he actually pray? Well, he prays for unity. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Christ makes this prayer as he's about to depart. He says in verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. This is a reference, I think, to our Lord's state of mind. He's looking to the cross, and he knows the glories that are going to come after the cross. And as he is praying, his affections are raising him past the suffering that's on the horizon. And so he's able to say, I'm not in the world. My mind and heart, my affections as I pray are with you in heaven. I am no longer down here thinking about the things that are going on. You may remember last week when we looked at John 17, 1, about affection in prayer. We need to make sure we get the right affections in our prayers, just as Christ displays them here. Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet promises us that those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. What does it mean when you mount up with these wings? You depart the world. In the hour of prayer, you are lifted up beyond the circumstances and able to commune with your Father. So Christ says, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. As he's about to part, and notice that the unity he prays for is through the Father's name. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me. Keep the elect unified under your name. That's where the unity began. That's how we were called into the unity with Christ and his church. And Christ prays, Holy Father, maintain that unity through your name in the lives of the elect. Well, what we've seen is that the unity of the church is based upon the name of the Father, and it is maintained by the mediation of the Son. And so as we conclude, we, probably in our experiences, we've, we've been a part of churches that were not unified. The reason church unity breaks down is because something else takes its place. Something else becomes the bond of union. We're the anti-vaccine church, or we're the pro-vaccine church today, as the case may be. We are the, the anti-masking church, or we are the pro-masking church. We're the homeschool church. We're the not homeschool church. We're the Republican church. We're the Democrat church. We're the Second Amendment church. We're the turn the other cheek church. You see how all these things take precedence over the true unity of the invisible church. The only thing that binds believers together, the only thing that binds the elect together, is their adoption by the Father in the name of the Son. And in the visible church, that is the only thing that keeps visible churches together. That is true union and true unity in the church. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the work of your Son and your name that he has revealed to us. We thank you also, Lord, that he ever lives and intercedes for us at your right hand and his prayers are always effectual. We ask, Lord, that you would receive these weak and frail prayers 
through the name of your Son and make them effectual for our salvation. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.